0: This morning's reading comes from all over the book of Proverbs. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, but when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us uh, as we dig into this, our second week of our study in Proverbs. Father, we ask you that you would uh, open our eyes to behold your glory, that you would open our ears that we might hear the truth, that you'd open our hearts to believe that we might live lives that glorify you in every way. And we pray this morning as we look at the contrast in Proverbs between the righteous and the wicked, that we would find our joy in you, that we'd be strengthened and encouraged in our soul, and that, God, you would just uh, allow your presence to be known among us, that we would uh, sense and know that you're with us, that you've promised you'd never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our second week in the study of Proverbs, and last week what we did is we opened up uh, the study by looking at why we need wisdom. my, My goal last week was to create an appetite for us as a community that we would grow in wisdom, that we would desire to grow in that wisdom. And then we talked about why we need it, but we also talked about how to get it. We talked about how to get it. Um, last week, we talked about why we need it, particularly in 2019, in this information age that we live, uh, where I said that we are more connected and informed than ever before, but we're also more uh, stressed and unstable than ever before, and, and I think that that is partly to do with our preference for quick information rather than the slow growth of godly wisdom, and so we need to have a hunger to grow in our wisdom. Um, 19th century baptist preacher from london charles spurgeon this is what he said about it he said wisdom is the right use of knowledge wisdom is the right use of knowledge to know is not to be wise many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it see that's the kind of thing you could say in the 19th century um, and nobody got mad at you (laughs) there is no fool so great as a fool as a knowing fool so great a fool as a knowing fool but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. And, and he did not live in the age of of you fact checking what I say on your phone while I speak, right? Like I I, I am a student in many different ways, and I also fact check when when someone's speaking. He say "Is that actually accurate? Is that true?" And I look it up. And and just because I know something in terms of knowledge doesn't mean I know how to apply it rightly in life. And that's why we need wisdom. Wisdom is the right application. Of knowledge. And so again, that's why we're spending all summer doing this. Um, how, How then do we take hold of God's wisdom in our lives? How then do we gain wisdom? Well, we talked about the life of Solomon. We talked about Solomon in the Old Testament. The wisest man who ever lived, it says, of Solomon... Uh, I talked about how Solomon realized that he did not know how to govern God's people the way that he should. And then, and then what he did was he recognized that God, the covenant, God, the faithful God was hearing his prayer. And so he believed that he could ask him for wisdom. And so he did, he recognized his deficiency. He recognized God's sufficiency in that. And that came together. James in the new Testament reiterated that point. Chapter one, verse five, we looked at this last week. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him come ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So basically what I argued for last week was that Solomon recognized his need and God's provision and that James is just restating that in the new Testament, that we have a need for wisdom and that God is promising to provide that for us. If any of us lack it, that's the realization of the self, but the realization of who God is means that we can ask him and he'll grant us wisdom. And so we need an awareness and we need a hunger and we can grow in our wisdom. God is good and he hears our prayer when we ask. So, so we looked at the why, why do we need this in the information age we live? Well, we have lots of knowledge, but a deficit of wisdom. We need to know how to live. How do we get it? We can ask when we recognize we need it and he'll provide it. But what does wisdom look like when it's lived out? That's what we're looking at today. What does wisdom look like as it's lived out? Uh, we are going to look at this kind of grand theme of the righteous and the wicked through the book of Proverbs, and that will help us to get a picture of what we're supposed to do with the wisdom that we gain. You with me? Why do we need it? We talked about last week. How to get it, we talked about last week, and so if you weren't here, there's a podcast. You can listen to some of those things, and then what to do with it. Here's how we're going to break this down this morning for us. Uh, we're going to break it down by looking at number one, why wisdom is not enough, why wisdom is not enough. Number two, how the righteous and, pro- and the wicked are contrasted in Proverbs. So we'll look at that. And then third, how do we work this out as Jesus church? How do we work it out as Jesus church? Why wisdom's not enough. Righteous and wicked in Proverbs and how to work it out in our lives. Um, why wisdom is not enough. Um, There's a scholar named Bruce Waltke, who I mentioned last week. I think he's written the definitive commentary on the book of Proverbs. Uh, He's uh, nearly 90 years old, actually used to teach at Regent College on UBC campus. Uh, So he used to live around here as well. He's an American guy. Uh, I first started to struggle with the way that I was hearing Proverbs taught about 10 years ago because I couldn't make sense of it in the way that i've been discipled to read proverbs and so i started doing some learning on my own to try and grow in my understanding and that's when i first came across bruce Waltke, and it absolutely blew my mind so here's my caveat to the whole thing that i'm going to say this morning the righteous and wicked in proverbs i owe entirely to him i did i had never seen this before i had never understood it before and it completely changed the way i read the whole book Okay, so if I say anything that sounds really wise this morning, you should think Brett's wisdom uh, comes to the level of turning the breaker back on when it blows. Okay, Bruce Waltke's wisdom is going to carry us. Okay, his understanding of this text is going to carry us this morning. Um, this is what he said. Wisdom in Proverbs and its correlative term, this companion term, its, its partner term, righteousness, is all about being rightly related to God, to other human beings, to all creatures, and to the environment. Just look at it again. Wisdom in Proverbs and its correlative term righteousness is all about being in right relationship with God, people, and everyone else. Okay, that sounds great, right? That, that makes sense. So why then would I say that wisdom is not enough? Okay, Here's what he means. Wisdom deals with an aspect of our knowledge, but without some additional help defining it, it doesn't move into the practical side of our life. It just stays there in our heads, in the realm of knowledge. So wisdom deals with the way we know how to do something, but righteousness actually deals with how we live it out. So it's dealing with our knowledge versus dealing with our practice. We need righteousness to help define wisdom in Proverbs or else we don't know what to do with the wisdom that we get. And the Christian faith is simply not interested in stuff that gets lodged in our heads and never makes its way to our heart to increase our trust in God or working itself out in the work of our hands in the way that we live. Okay, we're not interested in that. Uh, there's a historian named Rodney Stark who's written some good stuff about the movement of early Christianity. One of the things he says basically is, is that Christianity did not kind of pass along and really grow virally in that sense because it was being passed from brain to brain as much as it was being passed along with the observable love of neighbor for neighbor it definitely did reach into the philosophical mindset of the ancient world and all that and it was a little bit brain to brain and i would still say today there's that group of people who go brain to brain but most of us access christianity because of the way that we're loved and that was what was happening. And so we, we can have all the wisdom in the world, but without righteousness, no one's going to know that that comes from God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what I would say. I would say that if you, part of your criticism of Christianity, maybe you think like this and you say, um, look, I've met the head knowledge people, the head knowledge Christians. And the way that they talk, it doesn't really seem like it's changed the way they live at all in their, in their hearts in terms of their trust. In God, uh, and, and it doesn't really seem like it's affected any change practically, the work of their hands and their lives. It seems like it's just head stuff. And they want to think and talk about it a lot, but it doesn't progress anywhere beyond there. I, I'd say that's a fair criticism of some, uh, where we get it just locked in our head, and then you would look at it and go, it's just another philosophy. It doesn't have any practical impact in life. That, that may be true in some experiences of it, but you need to understand that, that Christianity is more than that. Maybe you've met people who are not the head knowledge people but they're actually the heart level people and they just believe okay i I know people like this i I think i probably am in some way given more toward this i just believe i just believe i love the head knowledge stuff and i want to work it out in my hands but but when i came to faith in god and in in god's saving work in christ i don't know what it was i just believed and i've kind of never not believed ever since that day i just believed And you might say to some people, well, they don't even have answers to those difficult questions of life. They're just heart level people. They feel their way into Christianity. And I ask difficult questions and they have no answers. And I would say that's probably a justified criticism of some of us. And then there's the other people who you would meet, and they're not really talking about the worldview of Christianity or the philosophical thought behind it or the theological underpinnings of it. And they don't want to wrestle through the big ideas. And maybe for them, they're not even talking so much about what they believe. They're talking about doing good things, doing good works. That's the evidence of what they believe. And what you would say is, hey, I'm a good person, too, and I can do good things without God. That's what I used to believe. I can be a good person and do good things without God. And what I want to say to you this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and maybe one of those criticisms is there, it's probably a fair criticism because we're still a little messed up and we're just trying to work this out. We're trying to take that head-level knowledge and work it into our hearts that we might trust in God, but we're also trying to then trust in God in a way that it would work itself out in our lives and the things that we do. And then there's others of us who would actually try and kind of behave our way into believing and so we're doing the good things trusting god as much as we possibly can hoping that we can sort out the rest of the questions that we have as we go and life is long and so there's all of us are moving through the head and the heart and the hands and the hands and the heart and the head and the heart and the head and the hands all the way through it and it's happening all the time and so you're going to meet people who are deficient in some of these things and that's completely fine none of us have all of this figured out but as a community, we try and bring this together so that we might have right answers, so that we might have bold faith, so that we might do good works, that God might be glorified in our midst. So I think sometimes your criticism can be justified, but that's why Proverbs is so practical. Okay, We're trying to get the wisdom of God lived out in what I'm going to define in a minute in a righteous way so that it's evident to all. Okay? Wisdom deals with that aspect of our knowledge, but when we add the righteous component that I'm going to show you into it, then it fleshes it out for us so we know what it looks like on the surface. Lived out, day to day life, practical stuff. So, wisdom, aspect of our knowledge, righteousness, what do we do with that wisdom and knowledge? This is the big point on why wisdom's not enough. Without righteousness, wisdom is morally neutral. Without righteousness, as defined by Proverbs, wisdom is morally neutral. There are lots of very wise people who don't know a thing about Jesus. There are lots of wise people who reject Jesus. Bruce Waltke says, Wisdom, in Proverbs, needs the correlative term righteousness because wisdom without qualification is a morally neutral term. The serpent was wise, but a devil. That's in Genesis 3. The Bible uses the term wisdom of sorcery and black magic. Consider, for example, its use in Exodus 7, verses 11 to 12. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And here's the point. Outside of Proverbs, it is possible to be wise and wicked, but not in the book of Proverbs. When we read the book of Proverbs and it's talking about the wise, it is not saying that you can be wise and wicked. It is saying that you can only live out the true wisdom of God with a righteous life. Wisdom is morally neutral. And that's why I spent time last week laying a foundation on the fear of the Lord. So I said Proverbs tells us that true wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a worshipful surrender to God. It's just surrendering your life to who he is and allowing him to govern your life and direct your steps. So we're not interested in wisdom in general. We have lots of wisdom in the world. We're not interested in wisdom in general. We're interested in rightly applying God's wisdom to our lives. Okay, does your brain hurt yet? Okay. I'm going I'm to ease off, I promise. We need this. We need to understand this. It's very important. That's why we need to look at the righteous and the wicked, and we'll show some contrast in Proverbs, and it's going to make sense, I promise. If it doesn't, just send Dave an email and tell him that it didn't make sense. And you want him to explain it to you. Okay. It's, if wisdom and the correlative term righteousness, okay, wisdom and righteousness going together, if that's all about being rightly related to God, rightly related to one another, and rightly related to the world around us, Then let's just look at a couple examples. This is what I want to show you. Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26. The desire, okay, we do have that, of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. The righteous gives and does not hold back. Um, Next week we're going to talk about money. This is talking about practical generosity. Next week we'll talk about what Proverbs says about money, and probably in some way this will relate to that based on what i'm going to define righteous as here righteousness in proverbs again it's about the way that we relate to god one another and the whole world around us it's the way that we love one another it's the way that we love our neighbor as ourself as we can quote the words of our lord jesus this text says all day long the wicked work for what's in it for them and all day long, the righteous look for ways to be generous. Just look at verse 26. All day long, he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Okay, this is a game changer I'm about to read to you. And this is why Bruce Waltke blew my mind about 10 years ago and changed the way that I read Proverbs altogether. He comes up with a proverb of his own that understood, I mean, for me, it, it brought every. Thread together into one cohesive whole where I could understand what he was getting at. This is what Walkie said The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to the advantage of others. Okay, read it again. The wicked advantage themselves to the disadvantage of others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to the advantage of others. Okay, If you're anything like me, that's going to lodge in your brain. And the next time you open Proverbs, which, I don't know, it's a very convenient book with 31 chapters where you can read one a day, every time you see righteous and wicked, you now have that easily defined for you. The righteous are people who disadvantage themselves for the benefit of the community. The wicked are those who disadvantage the community for the benefit of their self. The righteous person is the one who says, much of what I have belongs to the community. The wicked person says, no, 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 this is all mine. I'll say it this way. The righteous work for the good of the community. The wicked work for their own glory and gain. The righteous work for the good of the community. But the wicked work for their own glory and gain. It leads us to then examine the motives of our heart. And we need to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Talking about our time, our energy, our gifts, our resources. Everything that we would say is God's in our life. Because it's all his. How are we handling that? How are we stewarding that? Am I serving for the good of my community with little regard for what's in it for me? Or am I actually working for my own gain at the expense of others? Are my gifts and my abilities, are they being stewarded with the goal of the betterment of the community and the glory of God? Or does the community here actually just offer me a venue for me to build my life for my own good? Do I view my possessions as being mine or do I hold all things in common as possessions that were bestowed on me by God himself? So as it relates to the community around you, you can think of it this way. Are you you living as a taker? Or are you living as a contributor? A taker just sees what they can get out of a situation. A giver sees how they can find new ways to be generous. And I'm not talking just financially. I'm talking in every single way. How can you be generous with your life? How can you be generous with your wisdom, with your love, with your home, with your family? How can you be generous with what God has given you and how can you steward that so that you're not just taking but contributing? Because here's the beautiful thing. We, we talk about this in our marriage training too. But, but think about it like if a husband and wife, if, if I seek to outgive Allison all the time, by the way, it's her birthday today. Happy birthday. I don't know where you... Yeah! There she is. Glad she was in here for that. That's, for me, that's probably unrighteous, I think. There's something, something, something wicked about that. If I seek to outgive her, and she seeks to outgive me in our marriage, how great is that? There's actually, there's a verse for this. If you're a competitive person, like both of us, there's a verse for this. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a great competitive verse. I'm going to show more honor than you show. And you just get, just set your job. <clears throat> If, if the whole community is actually seeing how can I find new and creative ways to be a blessing versus how can I take something from this that's good for me, oh my goodness, isn't it? Just a, it's a game changer. So, reading the whole book of Proverbs now in light of the righteous and the wicked talks about the social implications of how that's actually a community reality. Let me show you. We'll talk about justice really quickly. Verse 12, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Okay, That means the thoughts of the righteous are for the advantage of the other, even if it's to our own disadvantage. But the wicked offer counsel that is only for their glory and gain. I can think of a time in my life. I was was 17. I'm just thinking about this now. Again, this is not always a good thing to share illustrations that come to mind as I'm preaching. I was at a tattoo parlor at seventeen years old. I may have been intoxicated. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. And I went in and asked if we could get a tattoo. I was the two friends. They were both of age to get tattoos in Alberta, which is eighteen. I was not of age, but I looked old like I do now. And I got a tattoo that day, very inebriated. A friend of mine got a tattoo. I have a tattoo on my on my calf. It's my regrettable tattoo. And it's a Canadian flag, which is not that bad. Like it could have been a lot worse. You're with me? Okay. I had not yet given my life to Jesus at this point. I'm a I'm, I'm drunk 17-year-old in a tattoo parlor. Okay? I'm just trying to set the stage for you. My buddy, who, who for sure won't be listening to this anyways, he got, you know, Pilsner beer? Okay? He got a Pilsner flag. I'm talking about, like, on his chest. And I remember him coming up to me, and one other guy, and he walks up to us and goes, Hey, he's got the stencil on. And he's like, This is cool, right, guys? And I was like, Yeah! Hey, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Like, if I really loved him, I would have said, Yeah, bro, you might want to think about this one, actually. Like, just push pause on this. Maybe just take a beat. Just consider it. Because as soon as he starts on the gun, it's there. And, uh, and so he had the worst farmer's tan of anyone I know because he was so embarrassed to take his shirt off in the summer. Um, anyways. Twenty nine seven. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. What does that mean? Okay. A righteous man is looking for ways to selflessly care for the disadvantaged. A wicked person is looking to take advantage of those who maybe are disadvantaged for their own gain. The wicked look at the weak in this world And how they can exploit them for their selfish gain. Wisdom, again, wisdom is neutral. Which is why we need to talk about the qualifier of righteousness and wickedness with it. Wisdom can be neutral in that sense. But wisdom with righteousness is the kind of wisdom that God speaks about and Proverbs talks about. How about the way that we speak? We're actually doing a whole week on, the, on our speech in this series. Uh, I'll just give you a few verses. Chapter 10, verse 6 says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Verse 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. What is this getting at? Right, The, the power of life and death is in the tongue. That's what it says in James in the New Testament, which is our book of wisdom in the New Testament. Power of life and death is in our tongue. And so we can speak blessings or we can speak curses. Our tongue can be the mouth of the righteous. It can be a fountain of life. You can speak blessing into people's lives or the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. What does it mean that it conceals violence? Well, when you close your mouth, you hide your tongue. And your tongue can be an instrument of violence. Are you seeing how this plays out? The righteous and the wicked in Proverbs. Right, We we talked last week about why we need wisdom and how to get it, but this is what it looks like as it's lived out among us as a community of Jesus followers. So do we speak wisdom forth for the good of others or do we use our words simply to build ourselves up? How do we speak? Again, this relates to community. Do we speak for the good of our community or do we speak for our own glory and gain? Uh, I read an article yesterday, if you remember Jeff Courtnell, who used to play in the NHL a long time ago, if you're as old as me, you saw him play and thought that guy's awesome. He had like 20 concussions in his career, started to struggle mentally, uh, descended into alcoholism post-career, got into a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, one of his friends who he played hockey with, a guy named Cam Neely, who's still with the Boston Bruins organization, called him up. I read this article yesterday, it's a fantastic article, and he called him up and he said, hey, cortnell I love you. Uh, your drinking going to kill you. Can we talk? Okay, he had enough courage to speak truth into the guy's life. He didn't just say, hey, hey, Courtnell, let's go party. You're a fun guy. Okay, do you love people? Are you willing to say difficult things to them because you love them? Are you willing to speak wisdom into their lives? Or are you going to withhold that kind of thing for your own gain? You don't have any uncomfortable conversations in life. How about Leadership i think this exemplifies what what bruce walkie's proverb is talking about verse 10 of chapter 11 says when it goes well with the righteous the city rejoices and when the wicked perish there are shouts of gladness why is there rejoicing when the righteous rule when they do well because the righteous are sacrificially living for the benefit of the city For the benefit of the province, for the benefit of the country, for the benefit of the community, for the benefit of the workplace. You fill in the blanks. Have you paid attention to the disintegration of political discourse in our generation? When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. This is why some of you should consider Running for office or growing in leadership or taking that extra course that would put you at a place where you can manage and lead from either within or at the top of an organization. We need to consider these things. It's all over Proverbs. Let me show you. Chapter 12, verse 26. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. 2812, when the righteous triumph, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Right? Again, this is true in your home, in your school, in your university. This is true in your workplace, your city, your province, your nation. This is globally true. Verse 28 of chapter 28 when the wicked rise people hide themselves why why do people hide themselves when the wicked rise because the wicked are only there for their own glory and gain but when they perish the righteous increase interesting verse 29 or chapter 29 verse 2 when the righteous increase the people rejoice but when the wicked rule the people groan I like this contrast. Look at this in chapter 28, verse 1. This might be the most famous proverb dealing with the righteous and the wicked. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Why do the wicked flee even though no one chases them? Why does the righteous person stand firm? See, if you hate God, and your entire life is driven by what Proverbs would call wickedness, which means you're working for your own advantage to the disadvantage of others, if you are constantly working with that mindset, you at some point start to have a mental breakdown and get very paranoid about whoever is coming to take your stuff because you have always only lived for your own benefit. Therefore, you assume that everyone around you is only living for their own benefit and you're wondering when it's your end. Look at the wicked flee when no one pursues. It's talking about the psychological state of the selfish mind. If you amass like a number of enemies by being a selfish jerk your whole life and, and you, know, you do that under the guise of like, gotta look out for numero uno. That's who you want to be. And you talk about that kind of thing. You will learn to live looking over your shoulder and you will flee when no one chases you. But the righteous person is bold. Why? Why? If you love God and serve the community, there is this inward peace and calm that comes to you where you know who you are, you know who you belong to, you know that you're loved, and you know that ultimately you're accepted and that none of that that really counts in your life can ever be taken away from you, and so you are free to stand bold in the face of adversity challenge and your psychological perspective on life is not paranoid running around, figuring out how not to lose what you've gained. Your psychological perspective is everything I have is God's. You need it more than me. There you go. It's a game changer mentally. When we look at how this is a social structure that we live within the righteous and the wicked, this is a weird paradox because the wicked don't fear God. Right, They reject the fear of the Lord, and they only live for their own gain, but but they end up fearing people. Do you see that? You don't fear God, you end up fearing people. But if you flip that, the righteous do fear God and don't fear people. Very interesting. The righteous live with a fear of God, not a fear of man, therefore they're bold. The wicked live with a fear of man, and not a fear of God, therefore they're paranoid. Because the conscience of the wicked is wrecked from being selfish. We all know that this is not the right way to live. We all know that. Living a life of denying God, even though you know that he is evidently there, will lead you to a place of tormented, paranoid conscience. The conscience of the righteous is good, though, which means they can live with boldness in the face of any challenge that comes at them. Proverbs 10:25 says when the tempest passes the wicked is no more but the righteous is established forever. Right no matter the storm that is going on in your life those who belong to God the righteous is what this is talking about those who live for the benefit of others they'll understand that what really matters is going to remain anyways so bring the storm it's okay we have an eternal perspective of what our life looks like. And we know that we serve the God who is the resurrected king, who is going to come and make all things new. This is, I think, the ultimate aim for us. Chapter 15, verse 9. It says, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Right? So no matter the storm the pursuit of righteousness. It's pleasing to God when you seek to live for the benefit of others. It's pleasing to God when you live self-sacrificially. Chapter 15, verse 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I want him to hear my prayers. So how do we work this out practically? As the church, what does this look like? Well, three quick examples that I'm stealing from Jake, who pastors Christ City East Van, straight ripping them from him because I think they're really good. Three quick examples uh, of how we can work this out as the church. You know, the church, one of the hallmarks of the early church, like I said, you know, quoting Rodney Stark, uh, the historian who would talk about this. Um, It it wasn't just correct theological belief, although that's very important for us to have correct theological belief, um, but a heart level trust and a a pattern of practicing regular sacrifice for the benefit of others. That was actually what marked the people of God in the New Testament and then beyond. There was something different about the way they lived. Jesus taught this. He taught all sorts of things like this. Um, Here's the first example. Christians Disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of other Christians. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is, this is key. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Right? Do you see the end that was happening here? They lived righteously among one another, preferring one another. And when Christians disadvantaged themselves for other people who had come to know Jesus, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's amazing. Second example, churches disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of other churches. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-3. to three. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. He's talking about how they took up an offering and they were an impoverished people. They took up an offering for the benefit of other churches, other People in different cities. They would never see their faces. They would never. It's not just like in a community where you go like, you know what? You have need. I'm going to, I'm going to give to you and I love you and we can hug. And it's great. These are churches giving for the benefit of other churches who they will never, ever meet this side of eternity. It's costly. Self-sacrificing. It's costly. It's costly. Righteousness. Third example. Husbands disadvantaging themselves for the sake of their wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those of you who have the privilege of being husbands, this is our call. I think we can extend that out beyond uh, simply us as husbands to the whole body of Christ. But specifically, this is one of the ways that, guys, you can do this. That means that you're the first one to sacrifice. It means that you're the first one to get up earlier, stay up later, work harder, take less. I don't know what it looks like, but you're the first one that gets to do it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I could go on and on because this is all over the New Testament. Do you see this though? If You can't, you can't do this if you're asking what's in it for me. Right, like if your mindset is I'm here to take and take and take and take and take and get as much as I can for me and me and me and me and me. You can't do it. You can't. Follower of Jesus does not wonder how they can continue to get away with something and not get caught. I wonder how long it'll be until someone notices. Right? That's not how we live. That's not our posture. Follower of Jesus is no longer keeping score. Right? There's no list of rights and wrongs being kept where we're like, oh boy. We invited them over last time, sitting here waiting for my reciprocal invite. Okay, I saw where they parked. This neighborhood's a nightmare to park in. I saw where they parked right out front of the church building. Next time, I'm going to get that. It's my turn. Maybe that one got real, I don't know. I get here before all of you, so I know where I park, but... Hey, because of God's grace in our lives, we don't live with that kind of entitlement. We don't keep score. Of course you can take this too far. Of course you can take this too far. Walkie actually, in his commentary, tells a story about shoveling snow. He goes out and shovels snow. He goes, oh, I better shovel that widow's snow. And then he goes across the street. He's like, well, that aged couple, I better go over there and shovel their snow. And then he says, he realizes he's out there for four hours. And he's like, okay, there's enough. That's enough righteousness for the day. <laughs> like, you got to be wise about that, too. Because you can just expend yourself, completely burn yourself out, and you're no good to anyone. But what does it look like? How, how do we posture ourselves? So how did the early church do this? Um, how do we do this? Very simple answer. His name is Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Doesn't that sound like the description of what Walkie says righteous and wicked is like in Proverbs? Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you go, oh my goodness, yes, how do we do that? Well, verse 5 in Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Our wise, righteous living is patterned after the one who laid his life down for us. The one who set aside his equality with God and counted it not a thing to be grasped as he became the God man and became fully human while simultaneously being fully God. Set aside his equality with God and said it was not to be grasped or held on to. He let go of that for a season of time for you and for me. He became man. He not only became man, but he actually died. Not only died, but he died upon a cross. The most gruesome death that you could ever imagine. Patterning this for us. See, our whole life is actually shaped by the cross. It's cruciform. Our Christian faith is cruciform. We follow Jesus who disadvantaged himself in the ultimate way for our ultimate advantage. Jesus Christ is the true, wise, and righteous King, and he is risen that we might have new life and get to live and participate in his kingdom in this way. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca.